0: You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: In this episode, I wanted to uh, continue the conversation that we were having last episode. So if you if you haven't listened to that one, might go back and listen to it about artificial and natural intelligence and sort of the differences there. And I wanted to pick up with um, an idea that you said was related to this thinking that you'd been doing um, around uh, systems and diversity.
1: Yeah, so I guess... Um... Last time we talked about differences between natural and artificial intelligence. Um, and I was referring mainly to this idea of the embodiment factor where the um, uh, information that we can communicate is much less than we can compute. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. there's another... I, I sort of think that that's... Um, you know, it, it, it somehow that, that's the way we've evolved to be. You know, I sometimes I wonder what would have happened if we'd evolved to have sort of bi-directional electromagnetic communication. Like, right. Like we have unidirectional, we can accept things in. So it's presumably conceivable. And then presumably we'd be quite different creatures. But we didn't. Um, we'd be mobile phones. No. Um, but, we, <laughs> but we didn't. Uh, but this one's different. This one's slightly more um uh I think going back to sort of difference between natural and artificial systems. Mm-hmm. So natural systems um meaning systems that have sort of evolved Mm -hmm. versus systems that um, were designed. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a very fundamental difference is that when you look at natural systems, like uh, if you look at the cell, um, any critical uh, component of the cell, any critical subsystem in the cell that's important for life um, is very robust. It has a lot of redundancy. In it, so if you do things like computational biology and you knock out a pathway in order to try and see its effect, one frustrating thing is that often the cell will respond by compensating with another pathway, because everything's entangled. If that pathway was critical to the survival of the cell, it's sort of it's got like more than one way of doing it. Right. Um, and whereas artificial systems, we tend to design in one way. There's there's a famous um, paper um i can't remember its title but uh something to do with how a systems biologist would study a a radio Mm. um and it tries to look at systems engineering and i i think the premise i don't it's a while since i read it but it it must have stimulated my thinking over a long time because i actually i think the premise is sort of slightly wrong now because it's sort of all about oh you know you would the systems biologist approach to radio would be to sort of break a component and watch it respond of course which would just break the radio Um, because you don't put, like, five different tuning circuits in. You just put one in. If you pull out any component from a radio, uh, it's unlikely to work. Um, Whereas if you pull out components from a lot of biological systems, they continue to work. And I think that's because the evolved systems, you know, the fact that... I don't like to say that they have a goal to survive because I don't think it's a goal. I think, you know, if they just don't survive, then you don't see them anymore. So any system that does survive must have put lack of failure in quite early. So it's very responsive to changing environment, changing circumstances, you know, as the circumstances change, the system can continue. uh, with its processes that's the first thing that can ha- has to happen for a, uh, a natural system to have evolved over many years whereas an artificial system the ones we design often we have a task in mind mm-hmm. and and we build them with that task in mind and we deploy them to do that efficiently and, and very often we're sort of saying let's try and do that with the minimal efficiency resource.
0: means no res- redundancy
1: Yeah, efficiency often means. I mean, of course, the safety critical systems like aircraft, Mm -hmm. um, and then you put in uh, some redundancy there. Um, But actually, aircraft, in order to to fly, have you know you remove a lot of the normal safety factors you would have um, on an engine. Their safety factors are lower. Um, But yeah, your main. But when you're designing, um, I just my sense is that. The way we do systems design just feels that it achieves almost an utterly different result mm-hmm. from the way systems arrive when they're evolved,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and our natural intelligence is evolved, right? So it has this wonderful robustness, this wonderful malleability. Um, you know, it's it it perhaps doesn't specialise. You can you can maybe find lots of individual tasks you can outperform humans on that task. But the amazing things about humans is you can kind of get them to do all these things. And and then they don't, you know, sure, there are sort of, you can catch humans out. The people have studied, you know, we have tricks you can play on humans and and make them do. But, you know, it it takes a while to to come up with them. There's illusions and everything else. But actually, we're we're pretty robust to Mm -hmm. a changing environment, a changing circumstance. And and that's another remarkable facet of our natural intelligence. Um, and I wonder what challenges will it will bring. I mean, the way we tend to deal with automation normally is we ensure that we do automation in a controlled environment
0: mm-hmm.
1: because it's it's like building these systems that then get faced with new circumstances that they didn't perceive were going to happen that's what catches us out right so we typically try and remove unforeseen things from the equation that's how we do it we remove unforeseen or and we try and design uh, in as much as possible but as you start to deploy automation systems which i think i think of ai as automated decision making so as you try and deploy automated decision making systems in 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 real environments where they face these very uncontrolled circumstances and the environment's dynamic and it's responding to them. I, I think that it's, it's going to be really challenging huh. um, for how those decision-making systems operate because, um, I mean, sometimes you hear them, I think I've heard Russ Tedrick talk about them as corner cases in, in relation to... Um, the sort of uh, DARPA robotics challenge, you know, right. the, it, it, I've, I've heard him speak very eloquently about the unforeseen things that happened that messed them up. I think that the, their robots bum bumped into the car and right. you know, that basically knocked out, you know, a load of stuff. And uh, he said, you know, that he obsesses with corner cases.
2: Hmm.
1: Um. And I can totally understand that in order to get these things working. But you sort of think, well, the real world, almost everything's a corner case. You know, you, you don't you meet so many things you've never seen before um and i think that this um the evolved systems obviously can deal with that artificial systems i think we're only just beginning to design well i'm even curious about how easy it is to design to deal with that level of uncertainty and and maybe it will have to, will have to change significantly the way we think about our systems creation and so I think of that as a systems thing, but I just think of uh, intelligence as a sort of complex system and, and, and anything that's true for the, these, these systems will be true for the challenges facing our artificial intelligences. So yeah, that's the, the second difference is, yeah, that typically artificial intelligences, they're, they're designed and so they tend to be good at one thing, but um, very fragile um, when faced with things they haven't perceived before.
0: So is the, is the paper, Can a Biologist Fix a Radio, or What I Learned While Studying Apoptosis?
1: That's right. Excellent. It's amazing that you know these things. It's <laughs> just like an encyclopedic reference. Can a biologist fix a radio? That's it.
0: That's yeah,
1: really fascinating. that's the paper. Um, I read it a long time ago, um, so I can't remember exactly what it said. But I think even the title is Trigger's Thoughts. And it was actually targeted at the time, which is a great area that I really enjoy. And a lot of the thinking that I'm describing comes from time spent thinking about systems biology, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: was when people were interested in how you bring systems thinking to uh, reverse engineering biological systems. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the, the era that paper's from. So...
0: So do you think it would be easier if you're trying to bring sort of robust systems thinking into computational systems thinking to study a little bit of systems biology? Or do we really need to sort of go back to the drawing board around our assumptions around robustness and redundancy and plasticity in terms of computing?
1: I think that what you see in the systems we design is that we tend to build isolated components that have an input and an output. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you go and you look inside a biological system, I'm not saying necessarily studying systems biology because systems biology is great, but it's trying to impose order on this chaos. So it comes with this classical systems thinking. But my sense was what you saw is, yeah, no one designed this. (laughs) You know, like it could because there was, you know, you can find modules. You try and identify modules, but actually, it's much more interconnected. So, so at some abstract level, it's useful to still talk about pathways and everything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in in another very um, interesting way, everything's interconnected, um, and the isolation that you expect that we tend to impose in good human design for for checking is just not there. And
0: yeah.
1: I mean I guess the follow up question is is it possible to get that sort of robustness right. and have that separable component things? Because the robustness often means that, you know, you've got um interesting um sort of symbiosis between systems. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that plays into intelligence, actually. Mm. Um or natural intelligence necessarily, but it's certainly there in um, within uh, the cell. This sort of symbiosis of different pathways—you know, dealing with when one fails—and that's that's that would be a very difficult thing to sort of. Um, I mean, it is a difficult thing. It's one reason why systems biology is hard because you know these components aren't independent. So debugging it becomes harder. And if we start building systems which have that sort of redundancy, then, then you get these interesting questions around that. Um and I I don't really know the answers in this, but it, it sort of feels a it feels a bit like um that these things become a greater problem as you deploy in less controlled environments. This is my <laughs> sense of it. <laughs> that the way we automated in the past is is you automate by controlling the environment. Right. right. You have something that can do X, it you know. Uh, like a, a sort of what was that? The, the sort of toys which are like the nodding bird you know right, oh right. okay like the, the homer simpson thing of pressing yes yeah i, I can right. do that yeah um uh and so then you control the environment and and the bird doesn't even have to know respond to have senses you know or right. whatever it just keeps doing the same thing the nodding bird
0: right so you have to sort of get out of the lab
1: yeah, and and what I suspect is that new ways of thinking about this problem might be required, and that the only way you'll really address it is precisely try stuff in the real world. I think it's going to be very interesting.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll have a copy of "Can a Biologist Fix a Radio?" up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. <laughs> Neil, uh, our listener question this week is also about biology a little bit. I love how we can tie things together with the theme sometimes. We got a listener question from David. He asks, can someone without a computer science degree enter a PhD program? The research I have done is all in cell biology. I would really like to study machine learning and create applications for basic researchers in cell biology. So, Neil?
1: Presumably a PhD program in... Something around machine learning.
0: Yes. Can a cell biologist, can a trained cell biologist, but only with research experience in cell biology, enter a program that is made to train computer scientists? Do you do you have enough sort of exchange of ideas there? Or is there a better way to do it if he's interested in helping to create machine learning intelligences that biologists can work with, are those efforts better spent somewhere else? I don't know, in collaboration, maybe.
1: So um, if, if there was no sort of computer science background, then that would be very, very hard, I think, to go into a PhD program. Mm-hmm. Master's degree conversion programs used to exist. Um, now, uh, they were often teaching people how to do basic programming and maybe sort of web programming, which I think is... is uh, with perhaps something, perhaps more from 10 or 15 years ago, um, they probably do exist. But actually more interesting than that would be some sort of data science conversion program. And I know I was involved in setting up one of those at University of Sheffield, mm. which is, I'm sure is amazing and mm-hmm. the best one to do. The but best I'm sure one. lots of other universities do them as well. Um, and some of them will be looking for more mathematical backgrounds, like I think the Sheffield one was. But there was another one at Sheffield, for example, in the information studies department that wasn't looking for you to have uh, necessarily a mathematical background. Because I think there is a big element to Well, one of the things I'm kind of um, – I think that they had a phrase. They called it type 1 and type 2 data scientists. And, and that's always the problem with type 1 and type 2. You never remember which type is what.
0: You're born with you know. it or you, like, eat a lot of candy and then you get it
1: yeah well that's yeah so that's the diabetes which i always forget <laughs> and then there's type one and type two errors mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. i think type two you know that's not even i'm not even going to go there and make a type one error about which is the type two error <laughs> and then i so i think i think what i remember um and it was i think paul clough who ran the program who's sort of introduced me to the term type one data scientists was someone that was inventing new algorithms i think it's this way around And a type two data scientist was someone who was sort of trying to solve the sort of business problems um, raised by algorithms, but not necessarily generating new algorithms. And certainly that's a really important role. I think you also hear it brought up as business intelligence uh, and sometimes data analytics is used as a term. um, I don't know. We haven't settled on the right terms yet. So there are definitely master's programs like that in, say, data science. Whether it's like machine learning itself, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I often, you know, hey, I wouldn't have got into a PhD program today in, in machine learning PhD, right? You know, <laughs> so it will depend a little bit what the nature of the program is as well. But, you know, I think really... If you're interested, I I, I believe very much in bootstrapping your current skill set. That, for me, seems really important. Why, you know, unless you've sort of really fallen out with something you've spent a lot of time doing, why wouldn't you try and find a way that you can steer yourself uh, towards the thing you want to do by, you know, um, by working with someone who's perhaps interested in deploying machine learning? uh one of the things i th- i find really really important in a successful project is is for the team members to be what i call socially vested
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm
1: and by social vesting i mean that they all um believe in the idea and form the idea together and mm-hmm. for that idea to work i always think of these three areas of the you know the whether there is actually a problem in the real world that needs solving which you might so Sometimes you might call that a customer pain point, but obviously right. know, it's not you know, but is, is there something that actually needs solving or right. are you just right. Are we just doing it stuff?
0: for the sake of something to do? Yeah.
1: Then it's like the deployability, how practical the solution and then there is how technically innovative you are. So deployability, mm-hmm. is it practical to you know, you could come up with an amazing idea, but there may be reasons why it's impossible to deploy because of existing ecosystems or whatever, or that there's other big ideas in that space and you have to displace them. Um, that's the deployability and the technical innovation is you know how good is the innovation i think people who are good at all those areas are important and Good ml would require if people are deploying their ideas into sort of cell biology or whatever requires those domain experts working closely with ml scientists and it requires those domain experts to start building and understanding what 's possible in machine learning and i mean there 's uh, interesting companies certainly in London mm-hmm. um, where they have exactly this setup start up um, some doing sort of drug targeting uh, and they, they set up like that uh, and I, I I think you must learn so much in those mm. teams. So that's another possibility. Doing a pure, yeah, it sort of depends what you mean by a right. PhD program in, uh, I mean, yeah, and I'm sure there's many different routes, but, but I'm also equally sure that you would have to do some amount of groundwork to demonstrate an interest in everything else. And, you know, actually I ended up doing my PhD by um, uh, initially being interested in the area of machine learning, trying to do some of it myself, starting mm. to meet some people through that. And then that's how I got connected in. And Ryan had a sort of very similar stories mm-hmm. around his PhD as well. So, I mean, I think just starting an interest and knowing in your head that you want to do a PhD and, and in the long term you want to move in that direction is typically the way it's going to go.
0: Great. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Peter Donnelly. He's a professor of statistical science at the University of Oxford. He's director of the Wellcome Trust Center for Human Genetics, and he's a fellow of the Royal Society. And you may have heard him previously on this podcast. He is one of the few people that we've had back for a second episode. And we invited Peter to come onto the show to talk about a special summit that was held between the American Academy and the Royal Society to really talk about the future of work and the impact of artificial intelligence and machine learning learning technologies on what we understand to be value um, and how the economy works. So, Peter Donnelly, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us on Talking Machines. It's my pleasure. You have the honor of being the the second person we've had on for two times on the show, the other being Ilya Setzkever. So thank you for being willing to submit again.
2: I know I'm very grateful and very honored.
0: <laughs> so um, just we, we already know who you are and where you came from, but just wanted to sort of do an update on what the Royal Society has been up to in the past year since we talked last.
2: Yes, yeah, so we had a big policy project on machine learning, on its impact on society in different ways over the next five to 10 years. As part of that project, um, we did some public engagement. We did some research on, on public attitudes, uh, talked to various business sectors, the academic community and so on. And we issued a report in April of last Mm -hmm. year, which happily for us has had um, some impact. So various things have changed in the UK as a consequence of that, which has been great. Um, uh, So a few months ago, the UK announced that AI was one of its four priority areas Mm -hmm. in a new industrial strategy. Uh, So it's great that the UK government thinks of AI as an area in the way they think of the pharmaceutical industry or transport or aeronautics and so on. As part of that industrial strategy and leading into it, There there was a government report on ai which picked up on many of the things that we recommended there's been additional funding or will be additional funding for phd places in mm. in ai and machine learning for helping at education at school levels training for teachers in computing uh, efforts to improve the funding of of uh, and the incentives for people to do quantitative training maths and so on wow. at schools as well so it's been it's been really great to see you know, when when you think about the issues and and write a report with colleagues, the Royal Society used its position to actually see some impact from these things, which has been fantastic.
0: Definitely. One of the amazing things about the report that you put out was that you spent so much time talking to the lay public about what their perceptions around artificial intelligence were and really just their even their understanding of what those words mean. What has the public response to this report been to have that sort of reflected back to them?
2: So a key part of the work we did uh, was public engagement, both making sure that there were venues in which we, we in the field could help uh, the public understand what was happening, and what might happen, but, but critically also getting their views and getting their assessment. And that, that was a major part of what we did and actually helped inform a lot of our thinking and actually it's helped inform my thinking about mm. uh, some of the key issues and challenges we have in the field. Uh, and you know there's a huge thirst i think amongst members of the public to understand more um, they get more excited if you talk about ai than if you talk about machine learning right, but yes, uh, right. <laughs> but there's a huge uh, excitement and interest mm. for it so the, you know various events have been held which have attracted you know thousands of people there's one there's one event held in the um, royal festival hall in um, in london um, where the Royal Society sold tickets oh, wow. at a fairly cheap price $10 or something mm-hmm. 10, 10, the equivalent of $10 uh, just to make sure that if people said they were going they would turn up. Yeah. Actually the week leading up to the event uh, those tickets were trading uh, on the black market for more than the tickets for Adele's concert. Oh
0: my God. Um,
2: which says something about the interest in the field. It's fantastic.
0: Peter Donnelly is AI more cool than Adele now?
2: Uh, for at least some people that was the case.
0: <laughs> awesome. That's fantastic.
2: Uh, I'm a big fan of Adele, So, <laughs> so
0: we're going the chance to talk to you again this time because uh, we're here at an event that the Royal Society is putting on with the American Academy about the future of work and and really the impacts of artificial intelligence, data, automation, and um, machine learning on the way that employment works and the way that we think about those ideas. So tell us a little bit more about this event, how it came to be, and what do you hope to get out of it?
2: A major theme that came out of our report was a call for society to undertake what we called active stewardship, mm. that, that we as a society need to think a little bit about the direction that we're traveling with the use of AI and machine learning, and that we're probably still early enough in that process to be able to make some active choices. Mm. Uh, and as I said, we called for active stewardship on the part of society to try and help these technologies develop in a way that the benefits should be, could be shared as widely as possible, um, to benefit people broadly rather than than benefiting just narrow in our interests so we've been very keen as part of that process to carry on and extend that conversation more broadly uh, one of the things we learned from our interactions with the public from our public dialogue exercise uh, not surprisingly they care a lot about the impact of ai on jobs mm-hmm. on work uh, you know on their own work and their families um, work and economic futures um, so it's a very natural area in which to to try and think about doing ongoing work, and and that is an area that the Royal Society has been um, continuing to to survey and gather evidence for. Uh, One of the things that's clear about the area is that in order to have a a serious discussion about the impact of AI and machine learning on work and the patterns of work, one needs to involve not just the people developing the AI, the people on the technical side, but it's really critical to involve in that conversation economists and historians and sociologists um, to involve people from industry, um, actually to involve some of the people leading the big philanthropic foundations, mm-hmm. because they have a role to play. Mm-hmm. So, we felt it was a fantastic opportunity and very grateful to the American Academy for the opportunity to collaborate with them to bring together those um, different communities to have a chance to focus on, on this question, how, how is technology, in, in particular the AI side of technology, how will it impact and, and play out in terms of the world of work.
0: And this seems to be a crucial conversation. There's a lot of excitement and and really passionately held ideas here. Um, it also seems to be a fairly senior conversation. These are sort of the the masters of thought in these areas. How would you suggest that the, the people who are doing the work in computer science to build, create, train these tools, who are usually fairly junior, become part of this conversation or steep themselves in these ideas?
2: I think one of the things which has been um, interesting and really encouraging is the extent of engagement from the senior leaders on the AI machine learning side with these questions. Mm-hmm. So it's slightly caricaturing it, but there has been an attitude in the past that, you know, I just developed the algorithm, it's not my problem, what right. they're used for. Right. Um, and that growing sense that that these are going to have substantial impacts on society. Uh, a lot of those impacts we all hope will be good, but some of them also need some careful thought, and, and the impact on work is one of those. Um, so it, it's a really positive thing, I think, that the um, AI community is engaging in that discussion, mm-hmm. rather than thinking of it as someone else's problem. Um, I mean, one of the amazing things that was brought up at the conference yesterday from, from a, 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 you know, a very major university, the fact that they're embedding ethics discussions in all of their computer science courses. Right. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: and, and whether you call it ethics, uh, or another view as social responsibility, I think those of us involved at the higher education level can, I think, do important work in helping people learning the subject also think about some of the consequences. And again, rather than fostering the attitude, you know, I just do the coding. What someone does with the algorithm is someone else's someone else's fault. So that's one area I think as a community, people at all levels can, can play a role, encouraging the people they're teaching to think about the issues. I think... Um, a key part is again for for people at all levels and often people earlier in their career are better at this than um, than those of you who are a bit more senior <laughs> you know use their voice, engage mm-hmm. with the public, take mm-hmm. the opportunity to to tell people about their work what they're doing uh, you know I think we all have an obligation as researchers in a field which is going to have an impact on society to be out there and helping people understand not only what's possible but the things that aren't going the the kind of science fictiony things that some people say we should be worried about that are a long way off. So that, so that engagement with the public, I think, is another important factor.
0: Excellent. So in, in the rest of your life, you, uh, you also do work in science. Um, you are at the Wellcome Centre for Human Genetics. Is that right?
2: Yes. Um, actually, I've got a dual role at the moment. Um, so I'm at the Wellcome Centre for Human Genetics at the University of Oxford. So that's a big um, academic research centre trying to understand the genetic basis of human diseases and, then, and, and use that to understand the diseases themselves better. And I currently split my time between that role uh, and a role as as CEO of a spin-out company we formed a number of years ago called Genomics Oh, fantastic.
0: Excellent. So tell us about how how your own work has changed and expanded since the last time we talked to you.
2: So my academic work um, now is mainly focused on uh, understanding a biological process called recombination. Mm -hmm. So that's the process which shuffles up genes when they get passed from generation to generation. There are really fascinating biological questions in that and actually quite a lot of that work which is a change for me is experimentally based so Mm. we actually do the lab experiments people in my group do the lab experiments um, and we think about how to analyze them and what we can learn Uh, probably more relevant to talking machines is the work in our spin-out company i guess by way of background there's a well-known statistic that uh, although drug companies put an enormous amount of effort into the research that leads them to come up with a drug target. some bit of human biology in which they can intervene to improve, say, heart disease or, or, or arthritis. Although they put a lot of research into that, currently only one in ten of the drug targets that get taken into clinical trials in humans actually end up as approved drugs through being A, safe, and B, better than whatever the current standard of care is. Right. And in most industries, if you're trying to build something and you failed 90% of the time, you think you had a problem. Right. And that's true in, in drug development. And there's a, there's a really simple and, I think, sort of obvious reason for why we as a field aren't very good at it, and it's because we don't understand human biology mm. very well. Mm-hmm. There's a natural reason for that as well. In every other aspect of science, whether it's biological sciences, physical chemistry and so on, science progresses by doing experiments. Yeah. We perturb a system in some ways, we measure what happens, and then we learn about it. And, and, and more formally, we have models or hypotheses which we can test or falsify by doing the experiments. So you can't do those experiments with humans. Clinical trials for drugs are, are in fact, highly regulated and very expensive Mm. experiments in humans. But in almost nothing else can you do interventional experiments of the kind we do throughout the rest of science. Right. That's why it's so hard to understand human biology. So here's where genetics, and the way we think about it, um, offers an important clue. So in some sense, there's this um, genetic code, which tells all of the machinery inside us um, what its role is and and when to produce this protein and and so on, and all of the building blocks and the stuff that happens that makes us function and and, and sometimes makes us ill. Um, We don't really understand that. Mm. If I go back to the drug analogy, when a drug company is trying to give someone um, a drug, they're perturbing some aspect of human biology. And at the moment, the only way they can tell what will happen is by doing a very expensive clinical trial. Uh, And as I said, most of the time they don't work. In fact, um, we all carry genetic variants... Many, many different genetic variants, and some of those perturb our biology. They tweak our biology, usually in little ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they're responsible for small differences between us. So if a drug company wants to know what the consequences of perturbing this bit of biology is, this gene, for example, um, in principle, if you had the right kind of data, you could find individuals who happen to carry genetic variants mm-hmm. which perturb the same bit of biology mm-hmm. and look to see what happens with them. And so the focus in our, in our company, Genomics PLC, has been, first of all, to bring all that data together, so we brought together data from about 1,500 different research studies, wow. um, which relate genetic variation in people to many, many, many different things that are measured. So disease outcomes, stuff we can measure about people, height and weight and lung capacity, stuff we can measure in their blood, like uh, cholesterol levels, um, levels of other circulating proteins, uh, and even the extent to which genes are turned on and off. So we have gone to a lot of trouble to build what you can think of as a big matrix, um, which for any of about 14 million places in our genome uh, if in any one of those places if you change an A to a T then we can just look and say what are the consequences of that change on each of 5,000 different things we can measure in people Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're pretty excited recently because we've developed um, in fact machine learning approaches which allow us to analyze that data and really start to tease apart what we call the human wiring diagram. Mm. So by 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 putting sophisticated machine learning tools on top of this um, extraordinary data, you can actually see instances where if you change this C to a T in the DNA code, that turns a gene up a bit, so it produces a bit more of the protein. You see that in the expression of the gene, the RNA that's produced by the gene. Mm -hmm. You can see it in the level of the protein. You can see changes in other proteins. We can see how it causes changes in other things we can measure about cells, and then in tissues, and then in stuff we measure in the blood, and finally disease. it's really exciting, I think, because these approaches, this getting the right kind of data and the sophisticated analytical tools, I think we're on the verge of really starting to piece together um, key bits of human biology. Uh, and it's, it's just taking advantage of the simple idea that though we can't do experiments, nature's given us all these different genetic variants, and so we just want to analyze it the right way.
0: That's, that's huge. I mean, you've eliminated the need for a wet lab by having a computational solution that can actually like, sort through the different perturbations that we see.
2: Yes. I mean, of course, we won't ever completely do away with wet labs and one wants to check some of those (laughs) things, but that's almost the case. We can, by having the right kind of data, you can see the consequences, the right kind of data and the right analytical tools. um, You can kind of see the consequences of these biological changes in people. Um, In time, those biological insights will allow us to be much, much better at drug discovery and, you know, from a company's point of view – there are major problems in drug discovery, and if, if we can understand human biology better, it'll help us develop better drugs, and um, right. also help us to make the right healthcare choices for individuals. So personalized medicine or precision medicine is all the rage, and, and you know, the idea that we want to give the right drug to the right patient at the right time, mm-hmm. you know, what's not to like about that? Sounds <laughs> right. great. Right, yes. But outside cancer, um, there are very few examples currently where we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, cancer special, and, and there's, we're much better at personalized therapies. Um, these kinds of insights are exactly what we need to be able to do that better. Choose or understand what the issues are in particular individuals, um, understand the biology, how we need to intervene, and, and so on. So it's incredibly exciting.
0: It's. I mean, it sounds amazing. Like I, I, I've always assumed that the reason that you can't do sort of perturbations on the human system is for all of the ethical implications it, of that. That's exactly right.
2: right. So that's exactly. Thank goodness. That's exactly why <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we can't do, Don't do it
0: do So, so what other ethical questions do you think that we will be able to sort of skirt or perhaps solve by using computational approaches to to questions we haven't been able to even ask before?
2: So at the moment. Um, We've been looking at data which has been collected in research studies and, mm-hmm. and usually mm-hmm. made available by the researchers in ways that protect anonymity of the um, individuals and often it's summaries of the data which protect it even more. But we're moving to a world where increasingly genetic information will be collected as part of health mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what the actual current number is, but on the planet as a whole currently there are maybe one or 200,000 people who have had their entire genomes read. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a clear part to that being a few million within the next few years. Mm -hmm. I think in probably 10 years' time, maybe 15 years' time, there'll be a billion people on the planet with their genome sequenced. Wow. In many cases, that information will be linked to information about them, Mm -hmm. either because it's connected with electronic medical records on the individuals or increasingly because of wearables that's collecting data in real time. Your
0: data exhaust is just getting siphoned.
2: Exactly. And that's an extraordinary opportunity um, to use these kinds of approaches to to understand human biology better, to help us at one level in developing drugs and then to help us in understanding the differences between people and the right treatments for the right people. And we'll also get better at predicting things too.
0: So, so Peter, um, there's a lot of really interesting discussion happening today around economics, around the role of education, around um, just what the future is even going to look like and how much time we have to sort of prepare the future that we, we want. So what are your main takeaways? Um, what is really exciting you about this event that we've had over the last couple of days?
2: I think it's been really helpful. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of studies and reports which have made predictions about how AI and machine learning will impact on the world of work. And uh, as I think someone said at the meeting, you know, every different study has a very different prediction. (laughs) Right, right. And one thing that's become so that I think the discussion in the field is getting more nuanced, which it needs to, and that's a very good thing. Um, One thing to come out of the meeting is the idea that it's actually a really hard thing to predict. Mm. It's hard anyway, um, but there's the additional factor, and you and Neil nicely pointed this out on an earlier podcast, as with the development of electricity and and then computing, there's actually, there's a period of time before the real benefits of new technology are seen. Right. And they usually depend on people working out how to do things totally differently to take advantage of the technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's very likely to be the case with uh, machine learning and AI approaches. It'll be when we don't just kind of plug them into what we're currently doing, but work out how to really take advantage of them, that things will be different. And that's hard to predict. Well, if people knew how to predict that, there's a commercial <laughs> right. success there. Um, that's hard. That makes all the prediction much, much harder. Yes. Um, that's been an interesting uh, take home message for me. Um, another one is a kind of obvious point, but it's helpful to hear it made that in many cases, what um, machine learning or AI techniques will do is to enable mm. what people do in their jobs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than to replace them. Mm-hmm. Uh, And where that enabling happens, and it's it's been the case in the previous technological uh, revolutions, where that enabling happens, it usually increases productivity, which usually uh, increases the demand for labor. So it's not clear that that will be negative for numbers of jobs. It's Um, making
0: people more efficient and effective.
2: Yes, and so the firms can then expand and probably need more people. Um, There'll be other roles where there's replacement. And so those two – so enabling – and helping people do what they're doing more powerfully or better um tends to be a positive in terms of, of use of labor mm-hmm. uh, replacing jobs tends to be a negative and there's a, a balance which is hard to predict between those things um now the key point is uh, a lot of the focus is on this many jobs will be lost right uh, right and again uh, you know the right question is not so much what's the number of jobs but what will the jobs look like right you know because People care about the nature of the... Right. Rightly, we all care about the nature of our We used to employ jobs. children.
0: We don't do yes. that anymore. Like, um,
2: <laughs> so that kind of thing uh, needs some thought and is also hard mm-hmm. to think about. on the sobering side, um, the first industrial revolution, in the end, um, increased uh, jobs. Mm-hmm. But there was 100 years of a pretty complex time in society while that transition happened. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, here, I think you know, we have a chance to be more... Um, thoughtful and aware in advance right so the importance of thing of safety nets for people mm-hmm. um, whether that's um, good health insurance uh, unemployment benefits and so on and again one of the things that's come out of the meeting is that there are differences typically between the way european countries handle those issues and the way they handle in the u.s yeah um, which may have an impact um, some of the fractures that we worry about are starting to grow already in society um so I learned and was really shocked that in in certain regions of the country and certain socioeconomic uh, groups in the US at the moment, one in four white men of working age mm. aren't in the workforce. Mm-hmm. They've kind of totally taken themselves out of the work, And that's a really scary and Shocking. worrying thing. Yeah. Um, and that's probably before the impact of, right. of the sorts of technologies we're talking about. And I think uh, probably the biggest message, and someone put it brilliantly uh, yesterday, we called in our report for this kind of active stewardship, someone said yesterday, we shouldn't just stand back and watch the future develop, Mm -hmm. we have an obligation to shape it. And so a key challenge is to work out what are the steps we should be taking now to maximize the advantages and do the best we can to ameliorate and and help the the more challenging aspects that will develop.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that's been really um, uh, eye opening for me is the, uh, the foundational and sort of foundational ideas and language barrier between um, representatives from the two, the two countries that are that are here, for the most part. Um, So, so And with these tools and with the building of them and thinking about what biases are built into them, that really needs to be a global conversation. Um, So what do you think are the steps that we can do to start that conversation? Do we just even need to, like, talk to each other?
2: (laughs) Well, meetings like this one are good. Um, I think you need to be pretty focused on what the actions to come out of that are, and Mm -hmm. that'll be a discussion that we'll have towards the end of the meeting. Um, I think there are big opportunities for large-scale philanthropic bodies Mm. to play a role. Mm -hmm. Another interesting um, take-home for me from the meeting. Um, They often have substantial resources. They're not as constrained as governments are by having to answer to electors and and voters and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, So they have the opportunity to be more bold, Mm. to take risks, and I think, uh, you know, encouraging philanthropic bodies to, to grasp that challenge and, and see how they can make a difference is one aspect, but I think we need to think hard about the issues we need the research that underpins it to be solid um, but we and in particular our politicians need to start being much more active than they were and of course as, as individual citizens we've all got roles in, in encouraging our politicians in particular directions, people in thought leadership roles often have, have high level access to, to leaders in government We need to take advantage of that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Peter Donnelly, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us.
2: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Peter Donnelly. I won't go through his entire CV again, but uh, he is a professor and also a fellow at the Royal Society. And, Neil, it's always such a treat to hear him talk not only about the work that's being done with the Royal Society around public understanding of machine learning, but also his his own work in, in genetics in which he's using a lot of these tools. It's really fascinating stuff
1: yeah he uh i mean he's a leading statistician and uh deployer of i mean i came across his work for my own stuff connecting the theme on the episode for my own forays into systems biology um and one of those broad thinkers that can mm-hmm. move across different domains yeah but a deep thinker as well and that is the breadth and depth is is is, is a sort of rare combination Um, and yeah it's always great to hear from him
0: definitely well that's it for us this week on Talking Machines I'm Catherine Gorman
1: and I'm Neil Lawrence
0: tune in next episode